right, amen. Well, I want to say thanks to Adam as well. Adam is, uh, as Matt said, the worship pastor at a church called Riverside Church, which is out in North Lauderdale. It is pastored by one of my dearest pastor friends, which I have a lot of them, so that's saying a lot. Uh, really amazing guy, Brian Brookins. He and his wife have been there for over 30 years, which is pretty incredible. What's that? 35, okay. So we've been friends a long time. It was 30 when we started. Um, really amazing. And Adam is also part of the Village Hymn. So if you were here with us last week, uh, it was led by Julianne Vargas. And Julianne is the creative director for Village Hymns. Adam is one of the founding members. He is part of the board of the Village Hymns. And as I said last week, if you have not familiarized yourself with the music of Village Hymns or really the mission, I would encourage you to do that. The vision statement is Village Hymns exists to see Um, vibrant, Christ-centered worship fuel a revival in South Florida. It's amazing. I love that. Like, that's what I want to see too. And, And so I point that out to you because I want you to realize, as I said last week, look, we're not the only ones hungering for this. We're not the only ones praying for this. We're not the only ones chasing after this. We're not the only ones looking for this. It's happening all over the county. It's happening all over the country. It's happening all over the world. And it's being led, I think, by musicians. I think the music that's coming out is really what's carrying the day. And so I would encourage you to check out their music. So as Matt said, last week we wrapped up a study, seven weeks on the topic of revival. But as I said last week, look, just because we have finished the study does not mean we have finished the pursuit. Actually, the study has set us up to pursue it. The study gives us the understanding by which we know how now in repentance, in humility, and in prayer to seek God and to ask him in an unrelenting, we are hanging on to you until you bring the blessing of your presence, to bring the blessing of his presence, to give us this special season of divine visitation in which God the Holy Spirit awakens his slumbering church and then from his presence in his church manifests and reveals himself to everybody else. That's what we want to see. And so in pursuit of that, we begin a new study today that, as Matt said, we're calling all things new. And in, in, we, in which each week, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon, the son of David, who identifies himself, by the way, as the preacher. So it's him, not me. All right? And he comes to us and he says, look, here's what I want to do with you guys. I want you to enter with me into a hypothetical world in which we consider life, and here's his phrase, under the sun. Now, what does he mean by that? He means, I want you to enter into this hypothetical world in which we hypothesize that there is no God, that there is no afterlife, that there's no heaven to be gained, that there's no hell to be thwarted, there are no rewards, there are no punishments, there is life, and then there is death, and then there is burial, and then literally, like, that's it. For eternity. All that there is, is what you and I can see with the two eyes in our heads under the physical light of the sun. And then here's the question that he's going to ask in some way, shape, or form, like the underlying question of the whole of this study. He's going to come to me, and he's going to come to you, and he's going to go, okay, so we're in that world, right? You're you're with me in that world, right? Does anything or anyone mean anything? Does anything or anyone matter? And here's the answer to the question. No. No. It's unavoidable. It's inescapable. Like you can't get around and he's going to make sure you can't get around it. Like he is going to bring his brilliant intellect to this and he's going to go, oh, let me just dissect this for you. 
You think this brings you meaning? Let's talk about that. Oh, wait, you think this brings you meaning? Okay, I'm going to just take that apart. You think this brings you meaning? I'm going to unmask that entirely. We're just going to undress it. You're going to see it for what it is. And here's what it is. It is utterly hopeless. It is utterly meaningless. It means nothing. It matters not at all. So we start there. And then after we descend into the darkness of that, we leave very quickly and we run to the book of Philippians. And the reason that we've chosen Philippians is because it's one of the most hopeful, one of the most joy-producing books in the entirety of the Bible. We'll go other places as well. You'll see that. But we'll end there. And we'll end with this realization and this unbelievable contrast in which we're going, yeah, but, but there is a God. And yeah, but... He has sent his son Jesus to claim us for himself. Yeah, but this God has a real heaven, real rewards, real salvation. There is a heaven to be gained. There is a hell to be thwarted. There is all of these things exist. And as a result of the fact that all of these things exist, okay, far from nothing and no one mattering at all, everything and everyone matters and for eternity so we start with Solomon the preacher in Ecclesiastes 1 beginning in verse 1 where he says this he says the words of the preacher Solomon the son of David okay the most wealthy the most powerful the most well respected the most well renowned man of the world in his day and ever as a king in Jerusalem that's saying something like you know we go to Jerusalem we see the star of David not the star of Solomon Solomon was the man. He excelled his father in so many ways. People would travel from all over the world to sit at his feet to just witness his wisdom. So what is his wisdom? He begins with this. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. And then the next word really matters. He says all is vanity. All right, a much better English word for what's being translated and given to us here than vanity, frankly, is meaningless. So what is he saying? Like the first words of the preacher, he's, got, he's going, guys, completely meaningless. Completely meaningless, like everything and everyone are completely meaningless. And then he pulls back his arrow and he asks a question that just drives it right through our heart. He looks at us and he says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He's saying, hey, no God, no heaven to be gained, no hell to be thwarted, no rewards, no punishments, none of this stuff that we believe in. If life is just life and then death and then burial and then for forever, that's it. There is no meaning to any of your words. There is no meaning to any of your work. There is no meaning to any of your thoughts. There is no meaning to any of the causes you support. There is no meaning to any of the tears that you cry. There is no meaning. And now he's going to begin to support his thesis. He says, just look at things. Observe life under the sun. What you see with your eyes by the light of the sun. And he talks of the generations. He says, a generation goes... And a generation comes, but the earth, which if there is no creator, is either eternal or at least made by no one out of eternal matter. He says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In other words, he's saying, what is more meaningless than the reality that we human beings live on a planet, we reign and rule over a planet, okay, that exists forever, 
While we, on the other hand, in rapid fire succession, generation by generation dissolve into dust. It's life, it's death, it's burial, and then literally like that's it. There's nothing else but dust. And oh, by the way, the life that we have on this planet in compared to the eternity by which or which the planet itself will exist is what? It's nothing. You're like, it's a second long. No, no, no. It's not even a second long. It's less than a second long. What is he saying? He's going, so what's the point of our reign and rule? Like, what is the point of anything we do? Why would anything that we would do in such an existence on such a place matter? I mean, the case just kind of makes itself. Just there. All right, I'm going to ask you a question, okay? I I could kind of answer the first of these questions. The second question does me in. But I want you to think about your great-grandparents for a second, all right? You got four sets of them. Think about your great-grandfathers. Choose any one of them if you can, which is kind of the point. What was his name? And don't use Ancestry.com, okay? Just like, what was his name? Do you know it? What was his wife's name? What were the kids' names? What was he like? What was his personality like? What did he stand for? What did he love? What did he hate? What causes was he involved in? What did he champion as a person? What was the nature of his character? Tell me one word that he said that you know about. What did he do for a living? Okay, look, I can do that for two of my great-grandfathers, which is weird But if you just take it one more generation back, great-grandparents, and now I got eight sets, and I got nothing. I have no idea. And I don't think I'm alone. I mean, the point is that in two or three generations, guys, nobody's going to know who I am either. They're not going to know a thing I said, what I stood for, what I did, what my causes were. And you know what? The same is going to be true for you. If there is no God and therefore there is no way for us to live this tiny little life that we have in such a way as to have an effect on anything or anyone for all of eternity, then none of us and nothing we do matters. It just doesn't. Listen to what Jacques Minot said. He was a Nobel Prize uh, winning French biochemist. He did not believe in God, so he lived in this hypothetical world that Solomon's invited us into. And he was honest. He said, do you know why we exist? Here's his answer. He says, we exist because our number came up like in a Monte Carlo game. We exist because we won the crapshoot. He said, we are accidentally created by the universe, and then here's our purpose, to be conscious of the fact that we're nothing more than accidents. And if this world has no creator, and you just look at the way it operates under the sun, I mean, all of these cycles sort of play into this argument. You look at the cyclical nature of this so-called eternal world, and you go, oh, maybe Solomon's right. He says in verse 5, the sun rises and the sun goes down. Remember that order. 
The sun rises and the sun goes down and then he says, and it hastens, it gets no rest is the idea, to the place where it rises again. And you can just feel sort of the wearisome, monotonous, cyclical cycle of this whole thing. And it's like, man, it's going and it's going and it's going and it's full of fury and it's really going nowhere. It's really accomplishing nothing. He continues, he says, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around. So there it is, goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. But to where does it return? To where it began. And for all of its blustery nature, what has it done? Nothing. He continues, he says, all streams run to the sea. So now he's talking about the water cycle. But what's true of the sea? All streams run to the sea. But wait a minute, the sea is never full. It's never satisfied. It never like gets to a point where it goes, okay, listen, we've got to tell all the rivers and streams to stop pouring into me because I am full. No, there's a cycle that's cycling water out and it's all just being recycled again and again. He says, the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. And so again, it's cyclical, but it adds something to it. The sea is never satisfied. He's going somewhere with this. He's going to say, hey, look, you know, like in a manner of speaking, here's the deal. Your heart is like the sea. It has all these streams running into it. And it's just never full. So not only is our existence cyclical and monotonous and meaningless and wearisome and accomplishes nothing, but it's not even satisfying. He says all things are full of of weariness because like the fury of the sun and the blustery nature of the wind and the the energy of the raging rivers were all of us racing off to nowhere and were never satisfied. And so deep is this weariness and so pervasive is the futility of life as he's described it, which is under the sun, that it exceeds the ability of human language to describe. He says a man cannot utter it. He says like the best I can do are metaphors. So here you go. Here's another one. He says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear with hearing. What is he saying? He's like, you've never seen something or heard something and said, hey, that's it. I'm done. That's all I needed. I'm full. I'm finished. Satisfied. He's like, no, no, no. As long as your eye is open, you're seeing. As long as you're conscious, you're hearing. And then he looks at history and he says, yeah, that's just... That's just doing circles too. He says, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. And then he asks a question. He says, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. You know, and of course, in some sense, the answer to that is yes, and it's always been yes. I mean, there have always been, throughout all the ages of man, people who have been inventing things and coming up with things. You know, the iPhone at some point was new. The internet was new. Like, all these things were new. All of the things that we enjoy at some point were new. Solomon understood that, guys. He's not talking about gadgets. He's not talking about inventions. He's talking about the human heart and human nature. And he's saying, yeah, in there, nothing's new. And nothing changes. The human heart does not change, and as a result, what ha- has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done again, and all our technology does is make us more terrifying. He says, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? And then he answers his own question. He said, it, is, it has been already in the ages before us. 
But then he gives us another lesson and he says, but there's no remembrance of former things. That's actually a lesson of history. So my favorite history professor from the University of Oklahoma, he's dead now, his name is Rufus Fears, super odd name, really, really, really brilliant and amazing lecturer. He has a whole study called The Wisdom of History, and he just goes through all the lessons of history. Do you know what one of the lessons of history is? That we don't learn from the lessons of history. Why? Because we don't remember them. And we think, even if we do, that for some reason when we step in the same puddle, our feet aren't going to get wet because, I don't know, we're different. Something's changed. Solomon's like, no, guys, so here's the deal. Human heart does not change. What's been done is what's going to happen again. He's like, look, but the problem is there's no remembrance of the former things. And then he sends another arrow into our hearts when he says, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. In other words, he's saying, just like you are guilty of not remembering the previous generations, the next generations will be guilty of not remembering you. All right, let's stop there because, like, that's about as much as I can take right there. That's it. Like, I, you know, like I'm going, like the sea is full. I'm, I'm done. I just shut the rivers off. Solomon, thank you for taking us into your land of depression. But, but what's the point? No God, no meaning to anything. Life, death, burial, and then that's it? then nothing matters. But guys, if, if the Christian God exists, then first of all, you've got the rest of his word to look at. But if the Christian God exists, and if in fact he is the creator of the world in which we live, and he is altogether purposeful, which he is, then you can look even at the world in which we live and you can reinterpret all these things that Solomon is saying. All these same cycles that seem to suggest no meaning all of a sudden suggest meaning. All these same things that seem to go, oh, your life's just doing like this, or wait a minute, my life's not doing like that. You've misinterpreted the message of the created order. I would refer you to the Sermon of the Son and I would do that because he's raised it. Interestingly, this is basically the talk I give at almost every funeral I do. What is the Sermon of the Son? Because it isn't this. And it isn't life, and then death, and then burial, and then forever, that's it. What is it? Because if God has created us to observe the sun from the earth on which we stand, which he has, then we observe it as it blasts across the sky and light and life. And it brings light and life and warmth and all of this stuff to everything beneath it. We all understand intuitively that if the sun died, we would all die. Like that would be it. Organic life on the planet would be over. And yet every day we watch the sun die. Every day. It descends into the horizon in the west. And it sprays the sky with the colors of blood. And as it descends below the horizon, it fills the world with things that mimic the grave. The world grows dark. In the ancient world, they shut everything down, the world grew quiet. Even in South Florida, it gets, you know, like three degrees cooler. Maybe. 
And here's what none of us do. We never freak out. We don't go, oh my goodness, that's it. That's it. We're all going to die. The sun just died. We witnessed it. The blood in the sky and the whole deal. And it's an obviously it's in the grave and it's taken us in the grave. No, we're like, oh, no problem. You know Why? We have this confident expectation that what's going to happen? The sun's going to rise. It's the language of resurrection. And so then what's the pattern? Because here's what it is, and it isn't life and death and burial and then that's it. It's life and death and burial, confident expectation of resurrection, and then we've not once been let down. Just keep playing it out. All kinds of patterns in your life. Sun goes down, at some point you go to bed. What do you do? You mimic the grave. You don't even know that you mimic the grave, but when you do it tonight, you'll remember. You turn down the air conditioning. You're making it cool. You turn off all the light sources. You want it to be dark. You turn off every possible thing that could make any kind of noise because you want it to be, listen to the language, silent as the grave. You get into your bed and you bury yourself in your covers because we use this language because we understand these images even though we don't consciously play them out. And we don't lay in bed freaking out going, oh no, I'm not going to wake up in the morning. No, no, we lay in bed freaking out if we can't go to sleep. That's when we take the melatonin. Because we want it. And we know that in the morning we will rise. And so far we haven't been disappointed. In the morning we rise. We smell the coffee down the hallway. You know, it's in the kitchen because we set the machine and, you know, it's got the timer and the whole deal and coffee needs to be made. And because some of us get up in the morning and we're like super happy and we're like bubbly and, and, and then other people get up and they don't like the super happy bubbly people, do we? None of us do. We want to be you, but we're not. And therefore we want to talk to you in 30 minutes after we have coffee. And so we make our way down to the kitchen, hoping not to see anybody. And we have our coffee and we make that and maybe we get something to eat. And where did all of those things come from? Well, they used to be alive. I mean, just think of the coffee beans. They were cut off from their life source. They died. And they endured all of these biblical emblems of judgment, great heat. They're ground up, you know. Same is true for the food that you eat. And yet as God has designed our bodies, we take that which is dead and even suffered and we bury it within us, knowing in great confidence, because it happens every day, that from it we will derive life. And about halfway through the cup of coffee, we're ready for a few words, right? It's amazing how that works. If you have a dog, we just got a dog, right around then the dog shows up because the dog's been good and the dog's been waiting for you to take her out. So now you take the dog out, right, to go poop in somebody else's yard because that's the goal, let's be honest, all right? But here's the problem. You have to take one of these plastic Publix bags with you, and I don't know if you've done this recently, but it's nasty, man. Like, you've got to pick it up with the bag, and then you've got to, you know, get, and then you've got to get the things, and then you've got to tie it off. This is awful. I don't know whose idea this was, but I am for, like, just getting rid of all the regulations and going back to the day when we just watered the yard and we considered this fertilizer, and we were good. But you do this because everything is on videotape, and if you don't do it, you'll be on the next door app and some email on video, this guy's dog pooped in my yard, and, you know, so... You pick it up, but the point is you're taking your dog out. Where does the grass come from? Where do the trees come from? Where do the bushes come from? Where do the flowers come from? Where did they derive their life? They derived it from a seed that died, that you buried in the ground on purpose. Like you didn't open your garage and go, man, we need some room. You know what? Just get rid of all this seed. Just stick it in the ground. You buried it in the ground knowing what would happen. 
knowing that it would come forth. Matt used the idea of the butterfly earlier. How does that work? I mean, plant the right kind of bushes, you'll attract them and you'll get to find out. But it starts as that creepy little caterpillar thing. I mean, he's braver than me. If that thing was on my hand, I'd be like, no way. But it crawls up into the bush, it spins its own tomb. Call it a cocoon. And nobody panics. We all wait for it to come forth, beautiful. No longer ugly, but beautiful. No longer earthbound, but able to fly. What about the turtles? We're in South Florida. I mean, we can just keep going. They come up from the ocean. They dig themselves a hole. They put all of their eggs in the hole. They bury the hole. People who love turtles come and stake out so nobody steps on that, which is a great idea. And I wish somebody would call me when they start to hatch because I really want to see that. I've never seen that. But they come up out of the ground and scamper for the sea. Full of life, different from the way they appeared when they went in. God is going, hey guys, this is not hopeless and this isn't the message. The message is not you live, you die, you're buried, and then that's it. The message is you live, you die, You're buried in confident expectation and hope that you will be raised again. Why? Because the whole of your world, every sunset, every time you go to bed, every time you eat something, every time you walk the dog and you see the plants, every butterfly you see, every turtle and all of its nesting and all of its eggs and all of its stuff, all of these things are training you to look for the one who breaks the pattern of life, death, burial, and that's it. Not just for himself. He does it for us. And so instead of moving from life to death and then that's it, what's the trajectory of the Christian? It is to move from death to life and then for forever, that's it. That's great. And as Matt said, it's a movement too from from darkness to light, not, not light to darkness. And I say that again because Solomon says the sun rises and the sun sets. And that is the way that we typically experience the day. I mean, we don't think about our day as starting at 12.01 a.m. or something. We think about it starting when the sun rises and whenever we get up around then. And then we think about the day ending, you know, like when the darkness comes. And, you know, I know we sit around and watch a movie or whatever. But that, you know what I mean? It's kind of over at that point. And so we experience it that way. We're moving from light to darkness, from light to darkness, from light to darkness. God's like, no, no, no. If you read the first page of my Bible, because I don't measure the day that way, it doesn't begin at the sunrise. It begins at the sunset. Just read the creation story. It doesn't say, and there was morning and there was evening the first day, and there was morning and there was evening the second day, and there was morning and there was evening the third day, and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. What it says is there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day. We're moving from darkness to light. And in dark times like we're in, that's good to know. And guys, frankly, the deeper and the darker the darkness and the longer it lasts, the more beautiful and the more joyful it will be the dawn. And what these realizations do is they take our lives by faith in Jesus out of the wearisome, monotonous, meaningless this. 
And they implant them in a joyful, productive, effective, purposeful existence that moves like this. It's very different. It's the difference between nothing and no one matters and everything and everyone matters. And so what those realizations do is that that makes a difference. It changes this and it also gives us hope for change in this. Because that's the other thing he poked at. He's like, yeah, what has been is what will be. What's been done is what will be done. Why? Because human nature never changes. And left to ourselves, he is 100% correct. But if God has intervened and if he gives us a new nature, then our hope is in the gospel. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come, full of new potential, full of new possibilities. And you say, all right, but then what about Philippians? Because you haven't gotten to that and it's getting late and I'm getting nervous. Um, And that is true. But I just want to hit you with one verse. After coming to the people at this church in Philippi that he planted, he's writing a letter to and that's what the book of Philippians is. It's a letter. He writes to these people and he commends them, first of all, for the work that they are doing for Jesus. He's saying, guys, what you are doing is not this. It's this. And the reason is because you are dealing with eternal souls. You are offering eternal life. Your service is about that. Your prayers are about that. Your work is about that. Your witness is about that. Your testimony is about that. Your attitude is about that. Your generosity is about, like, everything is about that. And that takes this and it makes it this. So he commends them for their work. And then in Philippians 1, verse 6, he says, And I am sure of this, that he, that is God, who began a good work, where? in you, in your heart. We'll do what? He will bring it to completion. But when? Because this speaks to the movement of history. He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What what day is that exactly? That's the day in which he steps into his creation and ends the darkness. It's a day in which He gives way to an eternal day of light. History isn't doing this. It's doing this. And it's moving toward that day. Very, very different. So I end with this. First of all, do you believe in Jesus and in his Christ or not? Because if not, then it's all meaningless. And that's not a reason to believe in Jesus. It really, like, that's not a logical, reasonable argument. But it is an inevitable result. I appreciate what Jacques Minot has to say because it's honest. And Jesus offers you so much more. And then secondly, have you surrendered your life to God and to his Christ? Are you living for him? Are you investing you in his mission and in his kingdom? Because that takes this and it makes it this. It makes all the difference in the world. So let's pray together. Father, we praise you. God, that you are. Lord, that you exist and that you make yourself known. You have made yourself known through your son whom you've sent into this world in love to suffer and die for those of us who have ignored you, who have denied you, who have rebelled against you, who have resented you. 
You have lived as though you do not exist, as though we are you. And yet in Jesus, we are forgiven of the whole of it. God, you fill us with your spirit and through your spirit, you make yourself known. You take your word and you write it on our hearts. God, by your spirit, you give hope, you give life, you give faith. You give a new nature and a new heart. And Lord, you take all of our thinking and all of our saying and all of our doing and you give us the opportunity through your gospel, wrapping it into your mission to not go in circles, to be remembered by generations for forever in heaven for the work that you yourself and to your glory performed through us. That's the kind of work we want to see, the kind of lives we want to live. So give us faith for that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.